0: We're continuing our studies in uh, Thessalonians, Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica, and um, uh, we're beginning this morning Second Thessalonians, so that will be the focus of our attention. And uh, you'll notice um, last time I taught on, on uh First Thessalonians, the theme was uh destined for trials and persecutions and, and there's a continuation of that theme, so we'll be continuing that uh uh that that idea, that reality from a Christian point of view, that uh, uh those of us that are committed to uh serving Christ, uh to following Christ, that um we can expect trials and persecutions as part of our experience experience. Just a reminder of the timing here, a- and the timing is, is really critical for our understanding. Um, are, we, are we focused as well as we could be here? Yeah? Um, maybe, uh, I'm just not sure. Yeah, that's a bit better. That's a bit better. Um, When we appreciate the timing here, it helps us, I think, understand something of the Apostle Paul and especially the church at Thessalonica. Um, Remember, all of this is occurring in the context of the second missionary journey. And Paul, you recall, uh, uh, lands in Thessalonica. Uh, begins preaching the gospel, initially as his custom was, uh, beginning with the, um, uh, the local synagogue of Jews. And when they rejected him, he moved on. But, but at this point in time, moved on to, to teaching the Gentiles. But at this point in time, something was a little bit different. The Jews in Thessalonica were particularly zealous and jealous of Paul's apparent success in winning the hearing of the people. And so their reaction was to turn on Paul and, and the turning was so severe that Paul had to get out of town for fear of his for fear of his life. And so the upshot of that is Paul, though he established this new church in Thessalonica, he was only there for maybe a couple of months. So it's really it's really early days for this church, and then he moves on. He goes to Athens and then on to Corinth, and it's at Corinth or from Corinth that he writes First Thessalonians, his first letter back to the church there in Thessalonica where they were undergoing the persecution that that Paul had attracted, they continued to suffer the persecution, both from the Jews and from from the Gentiles in that town. And then in the space of just, it seems, a matter of weeks after he sent them the first letter, he sends them another letter, which brings us, of course, to our consideration of 2 Thessalonians today. So I want to just sort of, I guess, introduce the theme this way, um, it gives us an insight into what Paul taught this fledgling church, that is introducing them to the gospel, resulting in faith, love, and hope. And I just want to cite there First Thessalonians chapter one verses two through five to highlight the importance, from Paul's point of view, uh, the importance of these these three um, uh, characteristics faith, love and hope and how he gives priority to that and connects that with the gospel, the fruit of the gospel in the lives of the church there. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you. So I just wanted you to notice the connection there. The, the, the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of this new church in Thessalonica and how Paul praises them for their response to the gospel, their obedience to the gospel and the way that that has borne fruit in their lives in the form of their faith, their trust and obedience towards God. And their love expressed, unconditional love, remember, towards towards one another. And I would suggest to you beyond the church, beyond the boundary of the church, but to those, their, their neighbours, those in, this, in the community. And also, of course, hope. The hope that they had because of the gospel. Now, we notice that it also gives us an insight into the experience, the early life of this fledgling church, learning how to live the gospel in faith, hope and love. God will hold persecutors and evildoers accountable. This is my summary of of the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. God will hold persecutors and evildoers accountable. So trust God. There's the call to to faith and faithfulness. And keep on loving others as you patiently endure suffering, suffering, Sustained by the faith and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So that sets the stage, if you will, for uh, for our moving forward in Second Thessalonians this morning. And I want to just remind you. Uh, by way of summary of what we talked about when I spoke last, uh, I think it was First uh, Thessalonians chapter three. And we talked about this theme of the gospel. You might remember. This is, hopefully, this will refresh your memories, and especially the theme of the gospel as it pertains to uh, persecutions and trials that, that, that uh, uh, the followers of Christ will be subject to, destined for trials and persecution. And we, we explored this idea of that, how that was expressed in socio-political terms and, and religious terms. They They were persecuted, they were out of sync, if you will, and persecuted as a result, out of sync with the Jews and out of sync with the Greco-Roman peoples. And so on both fronts, they were in trouble and they suffered accordingly. This is the contemporary church's experience, we concluded, which is the same as the early church's experience, Early church such as the church in Thessalonica. But here's the, here's the important point, the important connection to make. It's the same as Jesus Christ's experience. Now I want to cite here from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, not Thessalonica, The church at Rome. But you'll notice that the same theme is is prevalent. The same situation, the same challenges, the same circumstances applied for the brethren in the church at Rome as it did for the brethren of the church at Thessalonica. And again, this is just highlighting the reality, the truth. As Jesus warned his disciples, as they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. As I don't fit people's expectations, neither will you in following me, neither will you fit people's expectations. And you will suffer as a result of that. For you, Paul writes to the church at Rome, did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If notice, if in fact we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, if we were to read First uh, Peter chapter one verses ten through eleven, we would, if I can paraphrase it for you, um, Peter talks about Jesus. And the truthfulness, the veracity of their claims, the apostles' claims about Jesus. And in this context, he makes a connection between Jesus and the fulfillment of what the prophets promised. The prophets of the, what we would call the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament scriptures. And he describes their curiosity. This is the prophets of old, the likes of an Isaiah or a Jeremiah. He describes their curiosity about the things that God was revealing to them and through them. Remember, for example, Wednesday night, our studies in the book of Isaiah and the the focus upon the the, the theme of the, 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 um, uh, the suffering servant, you'll recall. All of these little glimpses, all of these little glimpses that the prophets were privileged to and communicating about God's plan for the future. It was still pretty obscure. It was still... Pretty, it was the, the detail was not fully known, but there were glimpses there. There were hints there. And Peter describes the thinking of the prophets under such circumstances. And he says they, they were curious about what, what on earth this is all about. The suffering and the glory that would follow. And I want to suggest to you that that establishes an important fundamental pattern, paradigm or framework for our understanding, not just the experience and the work of the Messiah, but our own experience as followers of the Messiah, suffering before glory, And you might remember this diagram. We've got the incarnation where the word, as John describes, the the pre-incarnate Christ. The word became flesh, said John. And in doing so, he came to declare the Father, to make the Father known. And so we've got this image of, of ascent coming down the bringing together, if you will, of of heaven and and earth in the incarnation, in the God-man, in the person of Jesus. But as we reflect upon that life, as glorious as it was, as astonishingly wise as he was, as extraordinarily good as he was, the world hated him. The world rejected him. His was a lot, largely, of suffering. And because we understand, with the benefit of hindsight, that that suffering preempted, it came before his glorification. That's a pattern that we are called to follow. That's a pattern that provides us with a way of understanding our experience in this life as disciples of Christ. We know, of course, in the glory of the resurrection from the dead, that Jesus ascended back to the heavenlies from whence he came initially from the Father. And he takes his place after the suffering Entering into his glory, he takes his place, his rightful place at the to reign at the right-hand side of the Father in the heavenlies. We all know this, we all understand this, but I'm wanting to be sure that we're connecting the dots, as it were, particularly as it applies to us, whether we're disciples in the first century, such as the brethren at Rome or the brethren of Thessalonica, or here at the Point Church today, some 2,000 years later. It's the same pattern. It's the same experience, and we do well to understand it. Of course, with the resurrection of Christ, we had the establishment of the church, his community, his people, his followers. And so we're here on this blue line, this blue dotted line, and this is our experience. As we, You'll notice deliberately I've got the, the upward movement as we are seeking to... To move upward in our, in our being in following the Christ. To become holy like Christ. But you'll notice we're still on that plane of, of suffering that Christ entered into. And of course the promise is that Jesus will return, the Perusia or the second coming of Christ. And at that time we will be with Him we will be with god and so to put this into context the challenge for us the question for us is do we get the gospel do we really do we understand the gospel and how it applies to us and do we understand in understanding the gospel that it works against all of the impulse of the world, especially today. The impulse that's so prevalent in our cultural circumstance, consumerism. Because consumerism can take many different forms, but the fundamental issue is it's about me. It's about what I want Can you sense how opposed that is to the gospel? The gospel is about kenosis, self-emptying. The kenosis brings us to the point of agape love, willing and doing what is in the best interests of the other, regardless of their response regardless of whether we think that they deserve it or regardless of whether they they react or return the favour, as it were. This is the gospel being lived out in our lives. And so we live in faith, trusting God, obeying God, We live in love, just as God is love, so we are love in this world, in our relationship with one another as as brothers and sisters in Christ, but even beyond to to our neighbour. And of course all of this faith and love is lived and holds together because of our hope that we have in Jesus Christ if we lay hold of that hope that rests in God's promises. And it's not just a case of take my word for it. No, 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 no. God has given evidence, concrete evidence, that we can be confident in our hope. It's not pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. It is a rational, well-founded expectation Jesus was raised from the dead. We too will be raised from the dead when Jesus returns to claim those that are his. Faith, love and hope. Why did Paul write a second letter? Well, let's just have a little sort of look here, remembering 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul spoke in addressing the church there that he he desired to fill in the gaps of their faith. So their, their faith as commendable as it was, even in those early days, there was still room for growth, says Paul. And you'll notice in verse 12, May the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow. So they were faithful, people of faith. They were loving. But there was room always for improvement. And so we notice in Second Thessalonians, in his next letter, he, he talks, notice verse 3, Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. This church was just going from strength to strength. And I want to suggest to you that number one reason why Paul wrote this second letter was that he was so encouraged by their faithfulness so encouraged by their commitment to love so encouraged by their hope that it sustained them even in in the most difficult of circumstances Paul's continuing his praise for the church as they continue to grow in faith and love and hope Paul can't stop bragging about them do you think of a better commendation than that? The apostle who only established them a matter of months earlier as a church. You guys are so good. Can I just praise you more so that you keep growing more? What a word of encouragement. But also, there are hints of trouble at the church. And this brings us down to earth a little bit because sometimes we get an idealised picture, I think, of the church in the first century, particularly as our, our focus, as, as people concerned about restoring New Testament Christianity, we look, we look to the church in the first century as it's revealed in Scripture. And sometimes we can, we can forget or, or overlook the foibles and the very real weaknesses that's there and even in the church at Thessalonica as praiseworthy as their faith and their love and their hope were there were still some problems. And I think you get hints of it here, uh, just citing a couple of texts from First uh, Thessalonians, Paul's first letter. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. Why would Paul make such a statement? I well, we suggested you remember uh, that that when he and Silas had to flee from Thessalonica, flee for their lives, and it was the brethren that were protecting them. Remember, they put up an assurance; they put up money so that Paul and Silas could be not um, caught up in a, 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 a kangaroo court, as it were, but then securing their their freedom. Remember, the church ushered them out of town, which presumably would mean that they forfeited their money. They forfeited their bond, if you will. It cost them financially. And so Paul reminds them that when he was there, it wasn't about trying to take their money. He did his best to to be sure that, that he wasn't a burden upon the church there. But I want to suggest to you also that there's something else in the background here, an emphasis upon the ethic of working hard to sustain yourself. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. Again, this focus, it's subtle, but there's little reminders that it's important to work, it's important to, to, to take responsibility For yourself. And not be a burden upon others. Finally, in in chapter 5 and verse 14, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. There's that little theme. It's subtle. But it just keeps coming up. And when we come to Paul's second letter, it becomes, I think, very evident as to what was a seed of concern just a matter of weeks earlier has now become evident that it's a real problem that's developed in the church at Thessalonica. Listen carefully to Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses six through twelve. And I'm not going to take the time to sort of do much more than read this text to make the point, to make the connection, um, because in, in a couple of weeks' time, I think David's going to be sort of giving an exposition on this text. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all unbelievers, I'm sorry, from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. Why would brethren be behaving like this? Well, this is, I think, the main reason for Paul's writing Second Thessalonians, Paul's addressing faulty thinking about Christ's second coming. Apparently, we're advised in chapter two and verse two of, of, of the second letter that some were, some had become persuaded somehow that the day of the Lord had already arrived. And of course associated with the day of the Lord is the recognition that well well in in setting the stage for the return of Christ there's going to be uh the radical change. We're right on the on the cusp, right on the threshold of the end of this world so that the new world can be ushered in. So what's the point? What's the point of working? we'll just put all this stuff aside and just sit back and relax until the Lord's here. You can understand the logic of that. But Paul points out it's not true. (laughs) You're mistaken. And this really highlights the importance of good theology, correct, true theology, because theology has implications for what we do. Theology is the basis for our practice. If our theology is wrong, our practice is going to be wrong. So faulty thinking led to faulty behaviour, which is what Paul is seeking to address here. So let's read the text together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This letter is from Paul, Silas and Timothy. We're writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. Begs an obvious question. If they're so faithful, how come they're suffering from hardships and persecutions? That's a fair question. That's a question that a lot of people would ask even today. If we're the people of God, how come it is so hard? If we're the people of God, if we're faithful, why, why are we constantly under attack? Not through overt opposition and, and, and persecution of that nature. Certainly that's not been our experience in the last however many decades. It's certainly not inconceivable that it might take a turn in that direction in, in future decades, but right now that's not typically been the case. In Australia we haven't had people throwing bombs into our assemblies and to blow us to bits because they hate us so much. That sadly happens in parts of this world, even today. But we've been spared from that kind of persecution. But I'm talking more about indifference. You nothings. You fools. Why aren't you having a party together? You could be having a much better time. If you've got to do this church thing, you know, the smart people are off. I don't know, fishing, playing golf or whatever on a Sunday. But if you've really got to be foolish enough to play this church game, at least you could turn it into something that's enjoyable. And knew we would just fill in the dots as to what we consider enjoyable or relevant. Now here we are, little mugs. We want to be the New Testament church. So we're committed to doing and teaching what the New Testament Church did and taught. The question is not about whether we like it or not, or whether others like it or not. The question is, what is truth? What is truth? And you know what? Regardless of the consequences, regardless of what others think, regardless of whatever form of suffering and persecution that that might attract, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to live in love. Because of the hope that I have in Jesus Christ, for those who obey the gospel, for those whose lives manifest faith and faithfulness and love, all bolstered by their hope. highlights the need for us to allow the gospel to be the paradigm or the pattern, the framework through which we view and interpret life. What I'm I'm referring to is that diagram we looked at on the previous slide. That we look at the experience of Christ and we see that suffering before glory reflected in the life of the early church and we need to understand and expect that to be our lot as the Church of Christ today. This statement from Lewis, you know, C.S. Lewis is one of those fellows, you, you know, you just kind of feel a bit envious. That you, get, you read some of his stuff and you think, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I say it like that? Um, He's one of his gems. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see Everything else. I invite you to substitute, instead of Christianity, substitute the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in the gospel, not only because of the resurrection of Christ, and what I would argue is compelling evidence to believe in the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified During the reign of Pontius Pilate, that he was buried, but on the third day he was raised from the dead, according to the testimony of eyewitnesses. That led to that phenomenon, that historical, tangible phenomenon that we know of as the church. There's the sun shining so brightly, in my view, in my opinion. Difficult to deny. But there's more to it. There's much more to it. Because I live my life through the gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection becomes the pattern for my living for my understanding, for my making sense of this world. By it I see everything else. Paul makes two points. I'm mindful of the time, I'm going to move quickly. Persecution is allowed to show God's justice, says Paul. And secondly, to make us worthy of his kingdom, the idea of our maturing into Christ's likeness So let's read the next section in chapter 1. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. He's, He's explaining now those two points. God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people. Praise from all who believe. And this includes you, for you believed what we told you about him. Now, I I think God gets some pretty poor publicity, especially today. He's often characterised a caricature, really, of this vengeful, mean person that that, that is arbitrarily insisting upon people jumping through hoops and who delights, delights in jumping all over you if you don't perform up to a certain standard. That's a misrepresentation of God, a misunderstanding of God. And I want to suggest to you, and I could wish we had all, all day to unpack this further and and discuss it, explore it further. But I want to suffice with making some assertions. Judgment, as it's indicated here, is not about vengeance on the part of God. It's about vindication. The vindication of the Creator and those who honour him. The writer of Hebrews said something along these lines, just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, so there's the first coming, if you will, the incarnation, the purpose that Jesus came was that he would offer himself, offer himself, There's the eventual mean God, I don't think so. There's the God whose heart is broken by our rebellion. Not just an affront, though it is an affront, but not just an affront. God's heart grieves because of the damage we do to one another by this little thing the Bible calls sin. Sin. God's response, he comes in the incarnation to suffer and die so that we can be reconciled with him. Even so, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Sin has been dealt with. The incarnation happened. The atonement was accomplished on the cross. There's no need to repeat that. The sacrifice has been made once for all. No, no, no. What, the next step, if you will, in terms of Christ's second coming, is not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Is that the hope of your life? If so, you've got much, much to look forward to. Let me diagram it this way. We have the incarnation, the first coming of Christ, if you will, where you have the gospel, Jesus Christ, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know it well. You know it well. And I want to describe the gospel, the incarnation of Christ, as God's yes to all people. Because we understand that Christ died for all. Every single person Christ died in the hopes that everybody would be restored to the Father through him. But then we've got the promise of the second coming and we find ourselves now in this historical moment in between the first and the second coming. So we have a very strong vested interest in this and and, and I'm reminded of Jesus' discussion in Matthew chapter 25, when he describes the second coming in terms of coming to separate the sheep from the goats, you'll remember. So the sheep being separated to the right, to use the image that Paul is communicating here to the church at Thessalonica, the giving and the receiving of glory. Suffering before glory. Glory. For those that follow Jesus' example, that embrace the gospel, when he returns, he will be glorified. There's your vindication of God. He will be glorified by his people. And you know what? His people will be glorified by him. The goats separated to the left separated from God's glory. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the implications of that, but just settle for the moment. Separation from glory, separation from the source of life. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, it is not good. It's not God's intention. But God says, if that's your choice, and it is our choice, He will, and this is a scary thing about God, he will honour our choice. So, if we say as one of the sheep, yes to God, in response to his yes, the gospel, he will honour that. But if we say no to God, he'll honour that too. Just to conclude, so we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. In this hope, build upon this faith, live through love. Paul says this is how it outflows, how it looks like in life. We keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honoured because of the way you live and you will be honoured along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's not talking about merit. A lot of people get nervous here when he uses words like um, being worthy. It's not talking about worthiness in a merit sense, as if we earn, but it is talking about our being Feticaum. We are called by God to faithfulness. Again, in imitation of the faithful one. We, in other words, are called by God to play our part, and we do have a part. Um, synergy in the Orthodox Church. I think, theologically, I think they're much um, um, more aligned with Scripture in this regard than, than a lot of the Western churches. The idea is that we surrender to the Spirit of God in our obedience to God. And in that surrendering, we are making ourselves available to the Spirit of God to work upon us. It's a team effort. Synergy. We can't do it on our own, but neither will God force himself upon us. Our part, through obedience and trust in God, is to surrender to him. And in our surrendering, we are allowing God to work upon us. So we conclude with Paul's statement in Philippians. Again, those of you that are Bible scholars, which is 95% of you, whether you realise it or not, having talked about the wonder of the Incarnation, the self-emptying of God to humble himself to become a human being, to suffer and die even the death on a cross. Paul says, that's your example, Philippians in the first century. That's your example, Thessalonica, In the first century, that's your example, Rome, in the first century. That's your example, the point, in the 21st century. Suffering before glory. Even dying on the cross, God's raised him up and glorified him that every knee should bow in awe, in astonishment. And so the call comes back to us. Therefore, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we conclude. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. I, the Christ, liveth in me, and though I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me.